Well, good morning, St. Paul's. So, uh, typically, this is the week of the year where we look at the scripture passage where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Palm Sunday. Uh, but we're not going to be doing that this morning, not because that isn't a great passage that we can learn a lot from, uh, but because as we approach Easter and the celebration of the resurrection, I really think it's important to reflect on what precedes that, which is the cross. And uh, typically we do that on Good Friday, and we're going to do that on Good Friday. Uh, but this year, I, I really felt compelled to spend a little bit more time on the cross. So that's what we're doing, and specifically what we're focusing on are the seven things that Jesus is recorded as saying uh, on the cross, his seven last words. Last week, we reflected on three of those sayings, and this week, we're going to reflect on another three, and then finally, at our Good Friday service, we're going to look at the last remaining one. So this is Last Words, Part 2. And if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that I presented an argument for the idea that the cross is the supreme revelation of the character of God. So in other words, if we want to know what God is like, we really cannot do any better than looking at the cross and looking at the character revealed by Jesus when he was on the cross. Because, as the author of Hebrews tells us, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his, of his being. The exact representation of his being. If you were here last week, you heard me say that a whole bunch of times. I really want that to... I really want us to drill that, that into our brains, that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Um, and not only that, but the cross is the climax of Jesus' ministry. So the cross is the climax of the ministry of the exact representation of God's being. So, you know, all of us wrestle with this question, what is God like, right? We wonder. What is God really like? Well, whatever pictures you have in your mind, uh, whatever conceptions you have of God, all of them should be subordinated to what we see on the cross, Jesus doing on the cross. No other image of God, no, no other picture of God should take precedence over Jesus and him crucified, as the Apostle Paul said. So last week, the three sayings of Jesus on the cross that we looked at all had a, the a thematic link, which is that all of them were other-focused. Uh, even though Jesus was in the midst of incredible physical, spiritual, mental anguish, he still managed to care about other people, right? Because he prayed for his crucifiers, he comforted a dying criminal, and he took care of his mom. Uh, and because Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, we see in all three of those sayings this powerful evidence of the love and grace of God. Now this week, the sayings that we're looking at, they don't express this theme quite as clearly, but I do believe that all of them reveal the love of God. And I'm excited to show why. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to John 19. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning. I hope you can track with me. Um, I, I believe that it's really worth taking in all this information this morning because when we get to the end result, it's very rewarding. So uh, be ready to, to read a lot of scripture. But starting in John 19, uh, let me say a quick prayer before we get into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for 
warmer weather and springtime and uh, the coming celebration of your, your resurrection and your triumph over death. Uh, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would help us to have insight into what we're reading. Uh, we pray that it wouldn't just be words on a page, but that it would be water and food for our souls. Um, God, we pray that we would uh, just have our, our hearts ready to receive whatever it is that you might want to tell us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and speak uh, to each individual heart here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in John 19... Verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Okay, so... Of the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, I think this one has got to be the one that, on the surface at least, seems the least significant. Right? I'm thirsty. What can we learn from that? Of course Jesus was thirsty. <laughs> uh, he had just spent hours hanging on a cross. His adrenaline was probably through the roof. You know, you guys have probably noticed that I take sips from a thermos every time I'm up, up here. This is not coffee. This is water. <laughs> And I do that because just the little bit of adrenaline that I get from preaching means that if I'm speaking at the same time, my mouth dries up quick, quick. And then my lips are all sticking together and it's gross. And you don't want to hear that. So I can't imagine how thirsty Jesus must have been because he didn't have any thermos to drink from. And he, uh, his adrenaline was probably way, way, way higher than mine is, right? Um, he's out there in the hot sun. I mean, this, the kind of thirst that Jesus must have had is the kind of thirst where you can't even swallow because there's just nothing to swallow with, right? So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that he says, I am thirsty. But do these words reveal anything to us beyond just the fact that Jesus was enduring a very unpleasant situation, to put it mildly? And I think the answer to that is yes. And the first reason for that is because the Bible tells us very clearly uh, that there is more to it. It says, uh, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So what the gospel writer is telling us is that when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he was also saying, I am fulfilling the scriptures right now. And then this is really interesting to me. So we're going to get into a little bit of detail here about how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Um, there is a particular psalm in the Old Testament, and this was written centuries before Jesus was crucified. Uh, and that psalm describes in detail what Jesus would one day experience. It's Psalm 22, and it's actually uh, the same psalm that is referenced just a little bit earlier in this same chapter in John, in John 19, when it describes the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothing. So this is in the same chapter in John, John chapter 19. Um, you can go down to verse 24. The, the soldiers have been uh, dividing up the clothes, and they say, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And then John says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 
So it's that line there. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing that comes from Psalm 22. And if we go to Psalm 22, way back in the first half of the Bible, and find that, that verse, we find that it's part of this larger passage that seems to be describing in remarkable detail what Jesus would one day go through. So what I'd like to do is go to that psalm, go to Psalm 22, read it real, real quickly, and then show how Jesus fulfills uh, what's in that psalm. So I love this. This is, this is amazing. Uh, psalm 22, starting in verse 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and, glo and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So yeah, let's walk through this real quick, okay? Uh, many bulls surround me. Now you might be thinking, okay, well I don't remember anything in the crucifixion story about bulls or lions or dogs, as it mentions a little later. Um, but if we see, view these, uh, these animals as poetic descriptions of what Jesus was experiencing, then this definitely applies, right? These could be poetic descriptions of those who are crucifying him. They could be poetic descriptions of demonic forces that were present at the crucifixion. So there's still certainly a sense in which Jesus fulfills these words. Then we have, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Now certainly Jesus' bones would have been all out of joint if he had gone through the whole process of crucifixion. But what I find especially interesting here is the poured out like water line. Because John writes, again, in chapter 19, verse 33, he says, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So that detail fits really well with Psalm 22, doesn't it? I am poured out like water. Jesus was poured out like water. And we also see in this passage in John another possible fulfillment of Psalm 22. Uh, because if, if you remember a little further in Psalm 22, there was that line, I can count all my bones. Remember that? Uh, and, well, John makes it a point here to say that Jesus' bones weren't broken, right? When people were being crucified, they had this little thing that went beneath their feet that they could stand on. And as they were being crucified, part of the reason you died is because you suffocated. But you would instinctually, as you were falling down, push yourself back up so you could get more air. So what they would do if they wanted to speed up the crucifixion, speed up your death, is the soldiers would come and they would break your legs. And it says that the other people that Jesus was with, who were being crucified at the same time, their legs were being broken. But when the soldiers got to Jesus, he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. So because they didn't break his legs, we could say that Jesus could actually count all his bones because they weren't broken up into pieces. It's very interesting. Of course, uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet. It's the most obvious allusion to Jesus' crucifixion. That's... It almost sounds like this is contrived or something, right? <laughs> How could that be there? Um, 
And then also, uh, people stare and gloat over me. That's described in many of the crucifixion accounts, people mocking Jesus. And then, as we already mentioned, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is amazing, right? Centuries before Jesus existed, uh, at least existed in his earthly life, uh, these words were written down. And then in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling them. It's not like he could orchestrate all of this perfectly, right? Um, at least as a human being. Um, so when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he seems to be fulfilling this part of the psalm. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And so what John suggests is that when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he was actually doing that deliberately to fulfill this psalm. Um, now, that's not to say that he wasn't really thirsty. Of course he was. <laughs> he wasn't just pretending. Uh, but there was a purpose to him saying, I am thirsty, beyond just expressing thirst. So again, I'm thirsty uh, doesn't just mean I am thirsty. It means I am fulfilling the scriptures. And Jesus is saying that the same spirit that directed the writing of the scriptures is directing his life. But beyond that, okay, I think there's actually another layer of meaning here when Jesus says, I am thirsty. And this particularly moves my heart, okay? This first extra meaning to I am thirsty, I'm fulfilling the scriptures, that moves my brain, you know, I'm kind of like, wow, that's really cool. But this next one moves my heart, and I hope it moves your heart as well. I believe that when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he's also saying, I have given everything that I have to give. So let me explain why. There is another place in John's gospel where he talks about thirst. It's in John 7:37, And he says, it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So earlier in the same gospel, in John's gospel, Jesus described himself as a source, right, an inexhaustible source of water for anyone who thirsts. And yet, on the cross, the inexhaustible source of living water says, I am thirsty. I mean, think about that. That moment really should break our hearts, especially because he's not just talking about physical thirst, right? He must be talking about spiritual thirst. Because when Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He didn't mean I'm a water fountain and, you know, if you're thirsty, come and have a drink. No, he means it in a spiritual sense. He means that he has water for our thirsty souls. And so it makes sense for us to think that when Jesus says, I am thirsty on the cross, he's not just talking about literal physical thirst, but he's talking about a spiritual thirst. He's saying, I, the source of living water, am thirsty. Jesus feels a spiritual thirst because he feels alone. Right? He feels betrayed. He feels abandoned. So, when Jesus says, I am thirsty, I want us to also hear, I am physically and spiritually drained. Or, as I put it earlier, I have given everything 
that I have to give because the inexhaustible supply of living water is thirsty. Okay, so let's move on to the second saying for today. Uh, you don't have to turn a page in your Bible. You just need to look down a little bit to verse 30. It says, chapter 19, verse 30, when he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. So other ways of translating this would be, it is fulfilled, or it is accomplished. And the Greek word here, see if I can pronounce it, is tetelestai. Tetelestai. And here's something really interesting about that word, tetelestai. When the New Testament was written, it was common to put an abbreviated form of that word on business receipts, if the receipts had been paid. Okay? So it is finished has a connotation of paid in full. Paid in full. And this is very, very fitting. Because in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you guys know how a ransom works, right? You've watched, probably watched enough TV to know. Um, someone will take another person prisoner, and they'll demand what's called ransom money in order to, really, in order to release the person. So maybe they'll, they'll send a ransom note and say, you know, if you ever want to see your friend again, you've got to pay a million dollars by Friday. And if not, then you'll never see your friend again. So when Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many, there's an, implica there's an implication there that we human beings are like prisoners being held for ransom. Um, and we can't be freed until that ransom money is paid. And Jesus has to come and pay it. So that raises the question, okay, well, how are we like prisoners held for ransom? That's the analogy that Jesus uses, but why does he use it? Uh, who or what is holding us captive? Well, I can think of three things that hold us captive. Okay. One thing is our own sin. Right? God has designed us to live in a particular way, and when we live in that way, we're the most fulfilled, we flourish. Okay? But our sin, uh, which manifests itself in all kinds of ugly ways, all kinds of interpersonal conflict and addictions, that puts us in prisons. Right? It, our sin holds us captive. A second thing that holds us captive, if uh, we're taking the Bible at its word, is the devil. And uh, that could sound a little superstitious today, but the Bible is clear that there is a personal force out there that wants to keep us in bondage, that wants to keep us from being fully alive. And then finally, a third thing that holds us captive is what you might call the patterns of this world. Uh, so the patterns of this world, these are systems of oppression and injustice uh, patterns of thinking that are bigger than just our individual sins. Um, they're harmful ways of thinking and operating that just kind of become part of the water that we swim in, just part of the culture that we're, we're a part of. You know, one pattern might be something like materialism, the idea that what's really going to make you happy is having more stuff, having more money. Um, 
racism can be another pattern of this world, the idea that people of certain ethnic backgrounds are more valuable than other ones. And these patterns of this world hold us in bondage. They hold us captive. So when Jesus says, it is finished, uh, it is as if he's taking our ransom note and he's stamping it with something that says, paid in full. And what he's saying is that our sin, the devil, the patterns of this world, these things no longer have to hold us captive. They no longer have to hold us imprisoned. Because of what Jesus has done, we can come out of our prisons. So when Jesus says, it is finished, what I want us to hear is not just, it is finished, but you can go free. You can go free from the prisons built by your sin, by the devil, and by the patterns of this world. Isn't that awesome? You can go free. Okay, one more. The third and final saying for today. Uh, this time we have to switch to another gospel. This is from Luke 23, starting in verse 44. Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So this is where we come to Jesus' very last words. We do still have one other thing to look at that comes a little earlier, one other thing that he said, but we're saving that for Good Friday. Um, but these were his very last words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So what do we learn here? Well, one thing that we definitely see in these words is Jesus' complete trust in God the Father. Right In his last moment, Jesus entrusts his life to the Father. Even though, as we'll talk about on Friday, he did feel abandoned by his Father. He felt betrayed. But even then, he still trusted him. And as he breathed his last, he reaffirmed that trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But there's something else that I think we should notice here. Something a little less obvious. And that's that Jesus actually gives up his spirit, right? That's the way that John's gospel describes it too, that he gives it up, um, and that's what we see in Luke. Jesus isn't passive in his death. He actually consents to it. Um, it's kind of like he says, okay, it's finished. I paid the ransom in full. I give up my life now. Time for me to go. So death isn't just something that happens to Jesus. Death is something that Jesus faces, and he says, okay, I will let this happen. And actually, that's something that we see throughout Jesus' uh, betrayal and trial and crucifixion. It's not just in this moment. It's through the whole thing. Uh, along the way, Jesus consents to what is happening. It's not that the people who are doing the things to him that they're doing are not responsible for it. They are still willing agents. They're acting. They're 
betraying and crucifying Jesus, they are perpetrating this injustice. But Jesus is clear along the way that he is consenting to it. Okay? And, and one moment where this is most clear is in Matthew's gospel. This is right after Judas has betrayed Jesus. Uh, and uh, the men have come to seize Jesus and arrest him and take him away. And Peter, zealous Peter, pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the people that's coming to take away Jesus. And Jesus says, calm down, Peter, as he often says. Uh, and in chapter 26, verse, 30, verse uh, 53, uh, Matthew 26, 53, he says to Peter, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So Jesus is saying, why are you fighting with a sword? Don't you realize that if I chose, I could have an angel army descend on these people? Don't you realize I've got more power at my disposal than anybody here? But if I used it, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? If I used it, how could I ever say, it is finished? How could I ever say, you can go free. And so, rather than calling on legions of angels, Jesus allows himself to be seized and taken away. And, in a similar way, rather than clinging to his life and refusing to submit to death, on the cross, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm consenting to this. I'm giving it over. And so, the point here that I want us to take away from that is that when it comes to this horror of the crucifixion and everything that came with it, it was something that Jesus did willingly. <clears throat> something he did willingly. Not because he was forced to, but because he chose to. All right, so we're going to put it all together now. So remember, I said, when you hear Jesus say, I am thirsty, we should hear, I have given everything I have to give, physically and spiritually. And he did that so that he could say, it is finished. And when we hear it is finished, we need to hear, you can go free. And then finally, because he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, we are reminded that he was doing this willingly. And so, the big idea to take away this morning the sentence that I think sums it up is, Jesus willingly gave everything he had to give, physically and spiritually, so that we could be free. Jesus willingly gave everything he had to give, physically and spiritually, so that we could be free. So let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, the exact representation of God's being, climax of his ministry. This is who God is. Wow. It's amazing. Now, I know most of us here, I know most of us here personally, and I know that um, most of us have been following Jesus for a while, um, but I don't know all of you, and I don't know uh, how many of you have a relationship with Jesus for sure. Um, but I don't know. I came to the end of this 
study and I read that sentence and I just thought, this, this is a time where the invitation really needs to be extended to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, I, I described earlier how Jesus said that he came to pay our ransom. And it's true that all of us are in a prison of some kind. None of us, none of us are not. Even if you're doing pretty well by the world's standards, all of us are to some extent imprisoned by our sin, the devil, and the patterns of this world. But Jesus has paid our ransom. So the question is, do you want to receive that? Do you want to receive the payment for your ransom? Because you can try and pay your ransom on your own, but you're stuck in the prison, and you're not going to get very far. <laughs> you know, people used to get thrown in debtor's prisons until they could pay off their debt. But it's pretty hard to earn money when you're in prison, right? And this analogy that Jesus gives for us, it reminds us that the position that we're in, we can't pay our ransom on our own. We have to accept the ransom that Jesus has paid on our behalf. So if this morning you have never uh, received that ransom, if you've never said, Jesus, I recognize that I'm in a prison and I want to go free, if you've never gotten to that point, I want to give you an opportunity as I close this morning to pray a prayer uh, to, in, to receive um, the ransom money that Jesus has paid and to enter into, into a relationship with him where you are freed from that captivity to sin, the devil, and the patterns of this world. So let's bow our heads. And uh, this is not something where there's a, a magic formula. Uh, this is all about the attitude of your heart. And God knows your heart. Uh, he knows it better than you know yourself. And um, so that's what really matters here. But if you can pray this with me, uh, I encourage you to do so. You don't have to pray out loud. You just have to allow the words that I'm speaking uh, to reflect the attitude of your heart. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am imprisoned. I have been imprisoned in my life uh, by, my, by my sin, uh, by uh, bad choices that I've made, uh, by patterns of addiction that I've been stuck in, um, by selfishness and jealousy and uh, envy. Lord, I recognize that there are also forces outside of myself that put me in a prison and make me feel trapped and make me feel like I can't be fully alive, that I can't be fully who I'm intended to be. And, uh, Lord, I recognize that I just, I can't get out of it on my own. I can't do it. And, Lord, I recognize this morning that you have paid the price for me to be free. That you did that when you died on the cross. And I might not fully understand exactly how that works, Lord, but I want to believe that that is the truth. And I want to enter into a relationship with you. And I want to walk with you, God. So I invite you into my life, Lord. I receive what you are offering to me. And I pray that you'd help me to know what it means to live a life loving you and loving my neighbor as you intended, God.
I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, I would encourage you to talk to somebody about it. Uh, We would love to help you get started because that's a start. It's not an ending. Um, So definitely talk to me or talk to somebody else. And uh, don't wait.